namo tassa bhagavato arahato samma sambuddhassa namo tassa bhagavato arahato samma sambuddhassa namo tassa bhagavato arahato samma sambuddhassa bhutang dhammang sankhang namasami so this afternoon, a uh, chance to reflect on, the, on this auspicious day of gratitude to parents. And I think this, uh, for the uh, Asian Buddhist communities, is something so natural, part of a cultural uh, attitude, uh, an important uh, aspect of, of uh, one's cultural identity. Uh, the strong family ties, bonds, and respect for parents is is ingrained in the in the uh, culture. Uh, for those of us who uh, come from Western uh, societies, it's very interesting that one was never encouraged to feel gratitude to one's parents. <laughs> in fact, it was the opposite. We tended to criticize them. Uh, my generation, I, we were, everybody was into criticizing your parents, especially your mother, my generation. Now fathers are getting it. But, but 60 years ago, that generation grew up in the 50s where uh, the mothers were to blame for everything wrong. And the feminist influence has changed the emphasis to the fathers. But uh, very few people talk about gratitude uh, and uh, gratitude itself, just gratitude uh, as, a, as a human experience that uh, to me has been a very important part of my uh, religious life. Uh, the, I think the experience of gratitude was uh, a, what they might call the heart-opening experience for me in my monastic life uh, because until I experienced the real gratitude, I think my life was very much a self-centered, uh, very selfish, very oriented towards self-advancement, self-enlightenment, self for myself alone. And, uh, and, if, and this was, uh, of course, the effect of this was a tremendous drive and, and willfulness, but not a joyfulness with life. life was not a joyful experience until I actually experienced gratitude. And gratitude was, was toward, uh, mainly towards uh, my teacher, Ajahn Shah. About my sixth year as a, as a bhikkhu, I suddenly uh, felt this, uh, this kind of heart-opening uh, feeling of gratitude, what they called katanyu, katawaiti towards uh, Po Cha, the teacher in Thailand, towards the Buddha. Felt a tremendous gratitude towards the Lord Buddha and towards the whole Buddhist uh, world that had uh, supported me in my monastic life and had allowed me to live this very uh, pure way of living uh, and to develop meditation around the, following the, the teachings of the Lord Buddha. That also allowed, uh, began, that kind of gratitude also spread to my parents. So when I went home to see my parents as a Buddhist monk for the first time, I expressed my gratitude to them. And they were, I think, overwhelmed. They were totally unprepared for gratitude. <laughs> and even though they were devout Christians, uh, after that they never, ever, uh, made any uh, uh, negative remarks about Buddhism, and I think they were very. They thought, well, he's you know he's a really much better person than he used to be. So obviously, it's doing something good for him. At least he's grateful. <laughs> now there's some quotes here from scriptures on gratitude. Just a uh, scriptural authority. I, I quoted one this morning before the meal. This one's also from the gradual sayings. 
uh, and it's called uh, Duties. Monks, these are these three things have been enjoined by the wise and good. What three? Charity is the first one. Going forth from the home to the homeless life and support of mother and father. These are the three duties. <clears throat> and then a gata, which says, giving and harmlessness and self-restraint, control of sense and service to the parents, and holy ones who live the righteous life. If any one be wise to do these things, be good men favored, he is an Aryan, clear-sighted, will attain the world of bliss. Then the, the next one is uh, is called equal with Brahma. And Brahma, here, the word Brahma, is uh, it's interesting use of the word. The Buddha liked to use the word Brahma in in ways that were uh, probably very different than than uh, people of his time would use the word. And he says, monks, those families where mother and father are worshipped in the home are reckoned like unto Brahma. Those families where mother and father are worshipped in the home are ranked with teachers of old. Worthy of offerings, monks, are those families where mother and father are worshipped in the home. Brahma, monks, is a term for mother and father. Teachers of old, monks, is a term for mother and father. Worthy of offerings, Monks is a term for mother and father. Why so? Because mother and father do much for children. They bring them up, nourish, and introduce them to the world. And then a gata follows. Parents are called Brahma, teachers of old. Worthy of gifts are they, compassionate unto their tribe of children. Thus the wise should worship them and pray and, and pay them honors due. Serve them with food and drink, clothing and beds. Anoint their bodies, bathe and wash their feet. For service such as this to parents given in this life, sages praise a man, and he hereafter has reward of joy in heaven. So this, this, uh, this of course, comes from the uh, Pali Canon and the, the attitudes uh, of... Uh, of that relationship of the of child or the uh, to parent, and because so in the Western world we've oftentimes developed the critical faculty of what parents have done wrong, uh, emphasized the mistakes they make. Uh, we 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 sometimes lack that that kind of emotional warmth and joy that come in a life where you are uh, where you are experiencing gratitude a life just based on 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 what was what goes wrong of course is a eventually one just becomes depressed if one inclines one's mind only towards complaining uh, dwelling on what is wrong with oneself or wrong with one's spouse or children or parents or society or world, then the result is that we, we end up feeling a sense of worthlessness and depression. And I think depression is a very uh, common problem that people have in, uh, in the Western world, in affluent Western countries like this. Um, men and women, uh, Talk about either being stressed or depressed, uh, and because the the uh, the life say of of uh, of materialism, which is based on getting things for yourself, what what on having rights and privileges and making endless demands on the society or on parents or on uh, friends or spouses, means that that we, we don't experience joy in our lives. The life becomes a joyless experience. So joy, and when I use the English word joy, what I mean is the experience that you have when you, when, say when you 
when you're generous without the desire for acknowledgement or reward, you're doing something because you love doing good, not because you're trying to get any merit or impress anyone at all. It's that pure sense, that, that sense of just loving the good and doing something for someone else. Uh, that feeling uh, I call joy. Our gratitude is, is, an, is something that you, you need to contemplate. You need to, uh, you need to consider all the good things that have been done for you uh, by parents, by uh, your friends, family, uh, children, by your own children, in fact, by the society. And this, uh, of course, is uh, then we, we begin to feel uh, gratitude and an appreciation for the good things that have been given to us in our lives. I look back at my own life and I see that, that I've had a very fortunate life. So much has been, life has been, say, uh, something that has, I've had so many opportunities, uh, occasions, options, chances uh, to do what I want to to go, to do what I want to do, to, to, uh, for education, for freedom, uh, freedom from responsibility, uh, all kinds of, of, of opportunities that even my parents would never have, have expected in their own lives. I look back at my own parents and they, they both have, have died about seven, eight years ago. Uh, and um, and they, they died of old age. But they were of a generation that didn't expect that much from life and uh, had limited opportunities for education or travel or experience. In, in those days, women were not considered worthy of educating. <laughs> you didn't want to waste your money on educating your daughters because they were supposed to just get married anyway and raise a family. And then uh, uh, my father was a kind of rebellious youth, so he he kind of fled home before, uh, uh, you know. So he he kind of missed out on any opportunity for higher education. So and then my sister and I were born in the 30s and the, right in the Depression time. So my parents then they lost their. The, what money they had in the depression and then they had to uh, my father just had to uh, take any kind of work he could get and then uh, then the second world war and by that time he was well into middle age and uh, ended up uh, at a, he was a businessman but he never liked it never never really enjoyed his work but he did provide a good home uh, stable environment, uh, all kinds of things that, that when I look back I can only feel gratitude. Uh, willing to, to uh, use his life and work hard to support his wife and his two children so that we had uh, so many opportunities for our own uh, uh, enjoyment of life. In the, uh, when I contemplate, to say, what my mother gave, of uh, this dedication that women have to their children. It's very moving when, when you notice how, uh, sometimes I notice with women, they, uh, I think sometimes they have an opportunity to mature uh, more quickly than men do because uh, they have to give up uh, so much to take care of children. And I notice when when women have babies, then they have to um, they have to put the baby first. They can't think of themselves, their own kind of interests and personal longings. They have to relinquish for taking care of their child. And uh, even though some women find this uh, in, in in a way annoying, or or they 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 would might even resent it. In the long run, it's very good for us strengthening for us to have to give up 
to relinquish what we want to do for the welfare of someone else. Now this is where your consideration and contemplation, but this is how I see it, is when we, when we have to give up our own selfish interests in life for the welfare of somebody else, that we, we uh, say, attain a level of maturity that we will never have if we're just living life for our own benefit. With me first, what I want, what I want to do, and then everything uh, following after that. In modern life, we can, here in Britain, we can think of ourselves first. Uh, it's where the, the society allows for it. Um, what I want, what I think, uh, my rights and, and uh, my life are the important, most important thing, and the society is willing to, to go along with that and provide me with endless opportunities for uh, that kind of view. So one is even grateful for a society that uh, gives you, uh, you know, the support and the, has, has, a, has a whole kind of uh, net, a safety net that one can, can re re uh, rely on in case of emergencies. Uh, and where one could even just drift in a society like this one. Here in Britain sometimes you feel you don't, you, you, do, you don't have to put forth much effort to, to survive. The society kind of carries you along. Uh, and, uh, and so therefore uh, you get people who don't, who, who do think of themselves only what they can get out of the system, what they can get from the government, from the various councils, just uh, for themselves without any real consideration of the society or any real gratitude for the, the, uh, for the welfare that's offered. But when we contemplate it, you know, I think, who am I then that I should be supported? Like for a monk, when we, we depend on alms, we're alms mendicants, bhikkhus, means uh, one who lives on alms what people offer. And so we don't live on a welfare system here in Britain, we live on alms. Uh, and we, and we, uh, we, we contemplate this, that every, every day the, the food that we receive is alms food. Uh, it's, it's given to us by someone else and it, people uh, want to buy the food, prepare it, and offer it, uh, and we receive it, then we contemplate this. That this, this is, uh, say, the meal, the offering. This is a generous offering from the lay community. So that we can live our lives as alms mendicants, our life based on meditation, on morality, on the developing the, the, the life that the Buddha uh, uh, praised, uh, so that we uh, say are worthy of these alms. We're not just using alms mendicancy as, a, as selfishly for our own benefit, but we are uh, participating in this uh, practice of, of uh, living according to the Dhamma, living as alms mendicants, uh, so that the, the alms we do receive, we feel that we are doing our best to be worthy of those generous offerings. So in this way, we, we contemplate uh, we, that uh, this is something that we are doing. Uh, and the alms food that we expect, we're not demanding that you give us uh, the best or any certain kind of food. An alms mendicant, the Buddha gave us an alms bowl, which, which was supposed to, uh, you know, the, the, in the, those days in India, you, you just go into a village and whoever offers food, you, you receive whatever they offer. Whether it's of a high caste Brahmin or an a untouchable or uh, whether it's a non-Buddhist or Buddhist, or it can be even a criminal or prostitute or of the lower levels of the society. Whoever has that, that kind of inclination at that moment to offer food to to an alms mendicant, say we would consider that food a, a, a pure food, no matter what, what kind of food it might be, whether we like it, don't like it, 
whether it's uh, well prepared or not, we're contemplating the, the act of giving rather than the, the food itself. And this helps us to, to develop gratitude, say, for the alms that we're given. When we become gourmets and uh, experts on food, then, of course, we, we develop refined tastes and we, we want only certain high-quality uh, types of foods that, that suit our particular peculiar interests. And so if nothing is, comes forth, then we complain about it. If we're, if we're interested only in, in uh, a, a high quality or a certain type of thing, then we're no longer alms mendicants. We've become gourmets. <laughs> uh, people also sometimes um, question, we, we get uh, criticized in the Theravada system uh, because we, we will accept uh, meat in our alms bowl. And uh, especially from Mahayana Buddhists, which are uh, like Chinese Mahayana, encourage a strict vegetarian practice. Uh, and this was, uh, this was also something to contemplate, the fact that, that, uh, that we're not, we're not, the Buddha didn't, in the, in the scriptures that we have, in the Pali Canon, he, he did not forbid uh, meat as something to be, that we can receive as alms food. But we're not to encourage people to go out and kill animals, cook meat and give us hamburgers and things like that, uh, Kentucky Fried Chicken or whatever. Uh, but we're not, we're not uh, asking or encouraging meat eating. But if it is uh, offered, then that also is alms food. So it's pure food. I know some of them made your face funny when I said Kentucky Fried Chicken. <laughs> <laughs> But I'm not, <laughs> I'm not here to condemn uh, what they call junk food. I'm pointing to that it's an act of, the actu action of giving is, is more important, the generosity, than the, than the quality of the food. And of course this then brings one to a, uh, a sense of gratitude. We, when, we, when we have specific tastes and preferences, then we do. We, if somebody gives us something we don't like, then we, we, we don't feel grateful. And in that lack of gratitude, then we experience a, a negative mental state. In Thailand, for example, the, the, um, uh, the place I lived was in the northeast, uh, which was very poor. And the food, in those days, the food you got was by my standards, was a very not very good. wasn't very uh, wasn't the kind of food that I uh, would want to eat uh, because the the most of the the food was quite coarse coming from the village and and uh, they would eat things that we would never think of eating in the West. Uh, and so um, the this type of food was at first one felt you know that it it would. This, this practice of gratitude, one would, it would reflect one's own kind of cultural uh, hang-ups. So because uh, of, of this, I could see very clearly my own co uh, conditioning, you know, of, of, of tastes and what is edible, what, what you should eat and what you shouldn't eat, as a matter of culture rather than in some kind of absolute universal truth. Uh, that that food is food and and uh, and and anything like that. just because one eats a certain diet doesn't mean that anything outside that spectrum of your own cultural uh, allowance is not worth, is not good enough to eat. But in terms of an alms mendicant, then you're you're contemplating the, the act of generosity itself. And of course, people when they offer food to a monk are doing it. Uh, they're, they're trying to give you their very best. Like in the poor villages in Northeast Thailand, people uh, were very poor uh, and they didn't have, they couldn't afford to go and buy uh, food from a supermarket. There weren't any supermarkets. Uh, but what they did give you, it was they were trying to give you their very best. 
Uh, and whether you thought it was the best or not was not the issue. It was they were, nobody was giving you uh, uh, their worst food. So this, when you contemplate in this way, you develop a heart of gratitude for what is offered. Parents, when we contemplate the, the, uh, just the, 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 the word mother, it's interesting, this, this word mother uh, in English, uh, just to, s to see your own reaction to the word. When we were considering honorific titles for the nuns, for the uh, ten precept nuns, <clears throat> I said, well, the, the most honorific title for women is mother. That's, that's the highest honor you can pay, you know, in terms of a, of a word. But their reaction was, well, we don't want to be called mother. <laughs> because mother doesn't, isn't in, in the West, isn't considered, uh, is, is not given much honor. It's not, you know, in terms of, of modern attitudes. It's, uh, you know, she's, I, I'm only a mother. When you, you hear these women talking, career women talking and about I'm a, I have a, uh, a d doctoral degree from Oxford. I'm a I'm a barrister, and then another one said, "Well, I'm only a housewife and a mother." You know, as if it was uh, something, you know, to be slightly ashamed of that you you hadn't done anything worthwhile yet because you weren't a barrister. But actually, mother is much higher word than barrister. <laughs> You know, in terms of archetypes, symbols, and that, and contemplate this, that it, that it is, uh, uh, you know, even though it's in modern uh, ways we use uh, this word, it's often, it's, it can be even a pejor have a pejorative meaning. You're kind of insulting someone, or it can mean, uh, we can give it all kinds of negative uh, attributes. But in terms of what it actually, you know, as a as a as a title, as an honor, honorific title, it represents what the the that for power in nature that gives birth. Uh, it's it's a miraculous thing, isn't it? It's uh, and the mother uh, it has this love for the child, which will she will sacrifice her life or or. Uh, you know, do anything to protect and take care of her children. This is in the in the animal kingdom as well as in the human. And so, this nurturing quality, this love, uh, is very much a a kind of seed of our humanity, in which we need to develop that sense of love and care for, say, our own children or our friends or in terms of metta practice, towards all sentient beings. So in Buddhism, you take this, this, this uh, what, what we regard, say, uh, in, the, in just the natural uh, relationship of mother to child, that, that love that a mother feels for her child, and we develop that and expand it towards, say, a, towards a wider group until it is Universal, and of course, metta practice is like that. It's, it's all beings, seen, unseen, high, low, good, and bad, the whole lot. When we practice metta, it covers, you can in everything you can think of, every possible form of, of being, uh, on on the positive or negative side, is, is we de we we're developing this metta or this loving kindness or a good will, a, a, a sense of sending forth what is, is good and honorable to all sentient beings, a sense of, of respect and, and care, and uh, hoping and, and sending forth good, good will, good vibrations to them so that their lives will be free from suffering or that they will will be able to free themselves from the causes of suffering that they create in their own lives.
So when we when we send metta, say to someone like uh, say uh, Saddam Hussein, it's interesting, isn't it? We we think he doesn't deserve it. We we can think of sending metta to Dalai Lama is easy, or metta to to uh, cats and dogs is especially good-looking cats and dogs. <laughs> we can have metta for if you're, you know, ethnic group. You have metta for your group. For we can have metta for all Theravadan Buddhists, and maybe none for Mahayana. <laughs> but metta, in this sense, is is universal. It's for every everything, for all religion, all types, all beings, the devils, the angels. And why is this? Because this is taking this, this, this human ability we have uh, to love, to care for something more than just ourselves, to not be just obsessed and, and uh, like a psychopathic is someone just totally obsessed with themselves and has no ability to love anyone or anything else. But say a, a human being ordinary human being we have we have this we have this ability we, we oftentimes fix focus it on just a, maybe one individual or maybe our own children or maybe our, our our own wife or husband or maybe our own group or maybe just our pet cat or dog but it's still this this ability to love to care about some some creature more than ourselves is a uh, is something to contemplate and to begin to respect in yourself and to and to develop it beyond just uh, say the limitations that you 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 have already and this is what metta pavana does it's it's taking that towards a, a total universal love it's 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 our, it's like unconditioned love it's divine is that the brahma viharas or metta is is what they call the divine abodes, the, the, like the Brahma always represents divinity in uh, Buddhist symbolism. So metta, it, we can see it like the sun, it shines on everything equally. It's not just shining on the good people. It shines on everything equally. And this metta is like that. When we, when we contemplate metta as a as something to, to develop in our lives, it, it awakens us to the possibility of, of even uh, having a ac patient acceptance and goodwill toward people who have hurt us, who've abused us, who've, who've done terrible things to us. We begin to see we have th this ability to love our enemies. And of course, in Christian terms, this is very much uh, what uh, th they, uh, Jesus Christ, recommend: to love your enemies. And this this used to baffle me as a when I was a child because I couldn't see how you could love your enemies because um, the enemies w made themselves unlovable. That's why they were your enemies. <laughs> <laughs> so in terms of, of love being liking and approving, uh, say that metta doesn't mean you approve and like everything and every being and everybody. Because liking, say the ability to like something or somebody, depends on things being likable. In that you don't like things that are not likable. Liking is a, is a is a feeling we have towards something uh, that attracts us. It has a we we want it, and so it it uh, liking is a is the emotional state of wanting something or approving of something because it is is that way. But love in this sense, or metta, or unconditioned love, is not a matter of liking or approving. Because it's it's a universal. It it can within that spectrum of love, it can incorporate 
all the bad and evil forces, the enemies as well as the friends, the devils as well as the angels. And this is within our human range. We're not just creatures conditioned into a kind of dualism of liking and disliking. I mean, we, if we were, we would, have, we would not be able to, to love our enemies in any way. There would never have been anyone like the Lord Buddha or Jesus Christ. Or any, those kind of beings would have been totally impossible to produce if humanity, if the human state was merely enslaved to the conditioning of the mind, of, of selfish intention and only uh, liking and disliking things. And sometimes that's, that's what we do. We tend to, to m maybe limit ourselves to that function of, of liking and disliking. But then uh, the power of uh, spiritual life, spiritual practice, is getting us, or is, is they, they refer to it as transcending. In Buddhism we call the Nibbana, the, the realization of Nibbana is transcending good and evil. It's being able to, to get beyond just the reactions and the conditioning of what is good and what is bad. And that is a state of pure awareness, the natural purity that we all uh, can, can realize when we let go of love and hate in our minds. And of course metta is, is, is that. It's, the, the, uh, it's a... It's a a way of practicing in which we, and a way of contemplating and reflecting in which we can, say, transcend the powers of liking and disliking, right and wrong, good and bad. In the Western world, I think we need very much to develop metta because I think we've, we've kind of gone over the top with our discriminative abilities. We're too critical of everything. We're too, we emphasize too much what's wrong. We, we make mountains out of every molehill. We, we exaggerate every flaw, every fault into, a, into an obsessive uh, state of mind. Uh, with, with ourselves, with the people we live with, with the, with the society we live in. We can, we can, uh, we can bring, bring so much emphasis and become so obsessed with, with one little flaw, with one thing that we don't like, that we can't see anything else. And that's, uh, you can see it with, with people, that you can Someone does something you don't like, and uh, and you can't remember anything they've ever done that was good, because your mind is totally fixed on the, the the one thing they did they they've done that you don't like, and how easy it is to to uh, really put them down and to to be quite cruel and rejecting of someone. Uh, because of a mistake they made, or the the weakness that that they might uh, that we might see in them, and not appreciate uh, the 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 other qualities. Maybe ninety ninety eight percent is is uh, good, but that two percent gets all the attention. So I think back of my parents, and I think those days when I used to criticize them. Uh, and think that they should have been more this way, more that way, or whatever, is I was taking the 2% the and, and making a big case for it. Unfortunately, I had very good parents, so it was, I didn't, I could never convince myself totally that of, of these faults as being terribly serious, because they, basically, they were good parents. But, but yet the, the, uh, the fashion of the time was that I mean, if you if you admitted, say, this was in the United States, uh, in public, in say, in university life, that you loved your mother, that would you you'd be you know they'd they'd really uh, everybody would think that you were uh, you know emotionally dependent, uh, 
uh, inadequate male, uh, probably inclined towards homosexuality. <laughs> so, and you didn't want anyone to think that about you, so you, you had to find some things to, you know, to hold on to, to, um, to um, have this sense of you're, you're one of the guys uh, who's, uh, you know, blames everything on mom. But some people do have parents that are not very good, or have done terrible things, abusive things to them too. So I mean, it's not, uh, in, and they can, they have, uh, they can justify their criticisms and their anger and resentments because they can think back to, to the abuse and the lack of love and the and the the things that have happened to them through their parents, and that, of course, is. Uh, you know, we do have these memories, so we do remember what the bad things done to us. That's part of our human karma. But in developing metta and gratitude towards parents, uh, we're also learning how to maybe look at it in a different, from a different angle. Say, even if they were 98% bad and they were 2% good, what would you do? And so the, the challenge would be to to try to bring into consciousness the two percent of goodness in metta, and uh, and the ability to to um, say forgive for the rest, and even though this might be a struggle because of emotional uh, pain and resentments, it's also something to contemplate uh, that that we we it's it's important to recognize the goodness of things, even in, in the most evil uh, uh, beings around us. Because n nothing is, is permanently and totally good or bad. These are not absolutes. But metta isn't just a, a kind of uh, a smarmy, uh, positive thinking approach. It's not, it's not to just to be sentimental and a kind of cover up everything with, with uh, positive uh, attitudes. But it's a willingness to, to bear with things, with, with inadequacy, with imperfection, and not create aversion and anger onto it. It's not just, it's not a, just a, uh, an affirmation of positive, uh, superlative words. But its ability, say, when you're really developing metta, is you're learning to to accept something you don't like and don't want and don't approve of, without getting caught up in hating, resenting, uh, uh, re resenting it. And this is uh, this, of course, is is quite a uh, a challenge to to most of us. Because something we don't like and don't, and, and, and we resent, we, we tend to obsess our mind with. Think it shouldn't be like this, it's bad, it shouldn't, we should do something about it, we should, we should uh, kill that person, or we should tell them off, or we should, some, like we, when uh, these, uh, these terrible, uh, like Myra Hindley, and people like this that are in prison for life, because she, and was this monstrous murderer of children years ago. And there's something in all of us that, that want her to pay the price for that. You know, when they talk about letting her out of prison, people get very upset because uh, that she should be made to suffer for what she's done. Uh, and there's this kind of vindictiveness, this desire to punish and get even, is, is something in us that, that is also a part of our human state. Wanting to, to take revenge, wanting to punish and destroy the evil forces, either in ourselves or in others or in the society. But in Buddhism, notice that the, the, the emphasis isn't on punishing or on destruction, but on recognizing and on practice of metta towards one's enemies rather than the practice of, 
of revenge. And of course, this is, this is something that most of us do find difficult because emotionally, I find in myself emotionally, I can sympathize with revenge. Uh, I can, you know, I can understand why you'd want Myra Hindley to be locked up in a prison her whole life and suffer enormously. If she's happy there, that wouldn't be right either. Well, she's in some nice modern prison with television and, and a pet cat and friends and living off the state. We're supporting this, this terrible person. We can get really indignant about that. Or we hear the, in, the, in Canada with this hor horrible couple, uh, the Bernardos, that, that uh, monstrously killed teenage girls and, and so forth. And there's something so hideous, so utterly evil about what they did uh, that you can see the, the cry of the public is that they should, they should have be, be punished for it and, and uh, persecuted. So I notice that in myself, uh, that feeling of wanting to, to get even or wanting to punish the bad people. And I contemplate, is that, a, is that something to cherish in me? Is that a good thing, good thing in me, that kind of emotion? Is that something I want to develop? I want to, to be someone in the future who takes revenge, who punishes others. Who, who enjoys seeing bad people suffer and contemplate that. Is, that. is that a quality, say, worthy of praise, worthy of honor, worthy of alms? And I honestly can't say that I would respect that. I can understand it and uh, I can uh, uh, certainly feel that emotion, but I don't, it's not an emotion that I respect in myself or that I want to cultivate uh, and, and I present myself with the possibility, if I, if I act like this and hold on to this kind of uh, vindictive revengefulness, then I'll have to come back as a human being again, probably have to go through it all again until I learn the lesson. <laughs> and that frightens me. I think, I don't have to come back and go through, you know. I'd probably be exposed to all kinds of challenges of horrible things that would rouse outrage and indignation and and I'd be full of this uh, righteous indignation wanting to punish and and get even with these with these nasties and it goes on and maybe I've been doing it for lifetimes already so in this lifetime with the help of the of the Dharma and monastic life and metta practice then I, I'm getting some perspective on this myself on this this emotion say revengefulness, vindictiveness, desire to punish or destroy evil things, bad things. Then I contemplate in terms of, well, if then probably some of you are questioning right now, well, if we don't do anything about it, we'll just let him get away? Just, you know, let Myra Hindley out of prison and just let her, you know, not do anything? Or the Bernardos in Canada, just, just let them go and... Uh, uh, it's, it's unthinkable. They should, they should be uh, drawn and quartered. At least locked up for life. Bring back capital punishment. Kill them. State murder is the big revenge. But also, one recognizes that nobody's going to get away with anything. I mean, even if even people that never get caught for their wickedness, they, they, uh, they, the, the, they have to pay the price uh, within their minds. You don't, you can't do horrible things without uh, living in a realm of fear, incredible fear and anxiety and, and self-aversion. And just notice in your own lives, when you do do something bad or wrong, and nobody knows it, but you, it's, it's torture, isn't it? To have to, to live with it yourself. And oftentimes you want to go tell somebody. People come here and confess to all kinds of things. They want to 
because they can't bear the burden of, uh, of their own, you know, of the things they feel they've done wrong in the past. They, 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 they can't, they have to just keep that bottled up inside. And people that are, that do live uh, evil lives are not people that one envies or would want to emulate, no matter how wealthy they might be or how privileged they might seem. Their lives are worthless and, uh, and, uh, you know, and miserable because of their mental state. They create, they punish themselves. We are the, we are the, we punish ourselves really. And so it, whether the state punishes me or not, or, or ever finds out, uh, I punish. And this, of course, means that, that we, we need to develop this metta towards ourselves. And metta, when we start with metta practice, it's always, um, may I abide in well-being, or may I be happy. It's, it's first starting with yourself. Directing this, uh, this sense of respect, of goodwill towards yourself. And this is one of the, the great insights I've had, is in learning to accept the bad side of myself without hating myself for it. So, uh, because the, how it used to work was if, if like anger or jealousy or negative states would come up into consciousness, uh, bad thoughts, uh, nasty or malicious thoughts, then I'd hate myself for it. So, say if I was, if I was uh, thinking nasty thoughts for somebody, then I would, then I'd start hating myself. I mean, I shouldn't, shouldn't be like this. Why do I have to have these horrible thoughts in my mind? I don't want them, so I'd try to get rid of them, try to suppress them out. But that doesn't work. I mean, you you distract yourself. You you maybe get away from it for a while, but. But the seed is there and the problem still arises. It comes back on you. One I can become obsessed with negative mental states because you suppress them all the time. And whatever you suppress, you're making a strong karma with. Because suppression is done out of ignorance and aversion and one becomes obsessed with what, we, with what you hate. And when you hate somebody, you think about them a lot. When you love somebody, you think about them a lot. <laughs> but those you don't particularly love or hate, you don't think about that much. <laughs> but these mental states, say in practice of, of uh, mindfulness and metta, means that, that even the bad side of myself, the dark side, as they say now in, in modern psycho-jargon, is the is the uh, the bad the dark side? One has metta for it in the fact of of one recognizes, admits it, and is willing to let it be what it is, and then it ceases. It arises and ceases. So you're not making karma with it. You're merely being mindful of it. And metta means that you're accepting it for what it is. You're not. Uh, adding anything to it and, and, and judging it or complaining about it, you reckon it's just this way and then it ceases. And that is the way to release yourself from those kind of mental habits. And it really works if you, if you do it, if you practice with it. Because, uh, let's say, or most of us who've lived, uh, say, monastic life for a long time, you. When, you know, one isn't trained in this style. So at first, so uh, say the first few years, I had tremendous problems with anger. And uh, because I, I'd suppressed anger in my lay life. And had never really, uh, you know, was frightened of it, fright frightened of the power of my own anger and uh, tended to, to suppress it and was never... We were never given uh, the right to express anger. Uh, it was something we shouldn't feel, a, an emotion we shouldn't have. And so in monastic life, 
suddenly, you know, the, the abilities to distract yourself and get away from this angry uh, anger is, was, was, were, were limited and you found yourself uh, kind of obsessed with ang angry feelings. And the only way you could resolve these angry feelings was to accept them. Uh, you just couldn't get rid of them like that. That, they, that life itself, monastic life, tends to, doesn't allow too much distraction. So it, you can't just kind of run around. You have to be alone a lot. You have to be in silence. You have to, uh, some, there's nothing to do sometimes so that the mind then will spew up all its suppressed, uh, rejected feelings into consciousness. And what are you going to do with them? And so this is a, why the meditation, why we, we, we re develop this pavana in order to relinquish and resolve especially negative states, ne negative emotions. And of course metta is the ability we have to accept something for what it is, no matter how horrible or bad it might seem in its quality. We're willing to bear it, to endure it, to be with it, and not to develop hatred, anger, and aversion to it. And then, of course, we're learning how to, say, not create negativity on something, on, on the negative objects that we're experiencing. And if we do not create negativity anymore, then we do not suffer. Even if the condition itself is ugly or painful or unpleasant, the suffering is our own creation. This realm that we live in, human realm, is like this. A lot of it is unpleasant. It's just naturally that way. Being human on planet, on planet Earth, a lot of what we have to endure and experience in this human lifetime is painful. Or we have to endure sickness and old age. We have to endure loss of loved ones, separation from the love. We have to endure having to coexist and be with what we don't like and don't want. I mean, these are, this, is, this is true for all of us, all human beings, everywhere, from all times. And the Buddha was saying this in India 2,538 years ago, and it's exactly the same now. It's not, the, these conditions are still... Uh, uh, what we have, we, uh, even though uh, modern Britain is uh, very different from ancient India, the human condition is very much the same. Isn't it? We have to experience old age, sickness, death as part of our human karma. We have to experience loss of loved ones, separation from the loved and the liked. We have to endure and be with what we don't like and don't want. And these are, these are uh, just a part of our uh, of everyone's experience. But this is not suffering. The suffering that we can free ourselves from is what we create. Our anger, aversion, resentment, guilt, remorse, uh, jealousy, fear, lust, greed, all these, these kind of emotions we create in our own mind. And that is the, that is the, uh, and so we are the creators of our own suffering. Well, this is for contemplation, anyway, for you to, to consider this in terms of, of, uh, of this special day where we, we have these, uh, this, this uh, excellent opportunity to, to uh, develop a sense of gratitude. Gratitude will bring towards one's parents, is, brings joy into the moment. When people die, what do we have left? When parents die, we have their memory, don't we? We remember them. And if we just think of them as dead, we, that's a, that can be quite, that can bring on grief. As soon as you think of my mother is dead, then that tends to trigger off this sense of grief and loss as an emotion. So on a on a day, say, of gratitude to parents say, who, are, who are dead, they, we, we're contemplating that, that we have, uh, we can think of them as dead, yes. 
but also we can remember the good things they've done. Well, that, that will bring us joy rather than grief. Will bring a kind of pity or rapture into the mind, uh, where we we feel we remember the good things, the kind things, the the loving things, the caring things, the the sacrificing of parents, uh, which brings us the, that's a memory. But it also the the result of that kind of thinking brings this this rapture to the mind pity or a kind of joyful feeling to the mind. When we think of them as dead, then it goes back into a kind of grief, a sense of loss of the love, which is natural. This is just how the mind works. This is the, the way things are. When we say on a day like this where we, we, we especially um, are thinking of our parents, gratitude to parents, and they, we come to the monastery, offer food, we do good things, keeping the sila and so forth is a, a way of honoring that memory. Because we can honor a memory. And in honoring the memory of our parents, then we, that also is a feeling of joy. Because now we're connecting them, their name and their memory with some good act. So it brings us, psychologically, it brings us, it makes us feel good. It gives us some purpose to our life. And, and we're using the memory of our parents, our parents' name, to do some good act, like planting the tree, or offering food, or whatever, doing something good for somebody else, uh, using your parents' name as the, as the catalyst for good actions, is is a beautiful way of honoring their memory and expressing this gratitude. Because we can't, we have no other way to do it. Good life and develop in the right way. In the West, I think in, in uh, Asian countries, this is very much, so much a part of, of a culture. And it is a very beautiful uh, I mean, this is, I really uh, respect this enormously, the way Asian Buddhists uh, uh, revere their, their loved ones and who have died. Because in the West, we don't, we don't know what to do when somebody's dead. Go put some flowers on the grave or something like that. Uh, it's sometimes we're just left with unresolved grief. And then even we're ashamed of our own grief. We're thinking, oh, here I go again. My mother's dead. I cry and I shouldn't. I'm just weak. And we tend to uh, think that grieving, grieving is some kind of uh, bad thing or something we shouldn't be doing. But remember, grief is, is this sense of loss. When somebody dies, you have a, like a hole in your mind. Something is no longer like your like if your mother dies, then, then that sense of death means that, you know, it's, it's, a, it's like a gap. It's like a hole in the mind. There's nothing there. Death is something you don't know yet. You haven't died. So when somebody dies, we don't know where, what happened. Where are they? are they? And we can have ideas about it. We can believe... Uh, like when my mother died, they were Catholics. At the funeral, the priest said, now Helen is up in heaven with the Lord, which was a nice thought. And, and I thought, yeah, I'm sure. I mean, my mother was the kind that if she was down in hell, that would really be unfair. <laughs> <laughs> That if she's anywhere, she'd be up in heaven with God because she was that kind of a person. But the fact is, I don't know, you know, that in terms of actual experience or I can hold to that view or I can just think, once you're dead, you're dead, that's it, blank, oblivion, nothing. Or maybe she's reborn again as something else. I don't, we don't know these things. So 
we're contemplating the way it is, that death, the actual death experience something we will all have in the future. But it's what we don't know yet. So we, we know we do not know it. And in that knowing, then we can, we can uh, say, use the, the memory of our, our people who have died. For example, our parents. Using that memory as something to, to develop uh, good action, to, to make a special determination in one's life. Maybe to take the five precepts that day, or to, to go to the monastery and give food to the monks, or, or to do something good for somebody else. Uh, because it, 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 is, uh, it will bring us joy, and it's a way of, of, of honoring and, and recognizing with gratitude the, the good things uh, done to us through our parents. So in, in, in uh, our life here in Britain, uh, I encourage this among all the British uh, themselves. And everybody likes this custom anyway. I've not heard anyone say they didn't like it. <laughs> and I think it's something that is uh, quite meaningful uh, because uh, we don't, most, uh, most people don't know what to do after somebody dies. And, and you just can't, you can just try to forget them or just go on, get on with your life. But they still, that memory still comes up. And so that memory is something to, uh, to say, in memory of, of especially of parents, to, to develop it into so, so, uh, something that, that encourages you towards living a better life or doing some selfless act as a way of expressing that gratitude. So this is enough for this uh, subject for today. Offer this as a reflection for you and uh, to uh, encourage you uh, toward, uh, say, understanding yourselves better and how to develop the, the practice of metta in your own lives and uh, prepare you for your own uh, eventual experience of death. So, all my best wishes and thoughts. May you uh, all live a long life and uh, have good health, success, and be free from all suffering and to realize the, re the truth of Nibbana before your body dies.